I love that man, and I love his wife and his kids. Um, you will live a whole lifetime, and you'll be able to count friends on one hand that you uh, can count on forever. It doesn't matter how many friends you have. You won't have that many that you can count on for the rest of your life. And I know that in my short list of, in my handful of friends, Dave and Angie are in that circle. So it's, it's an honor. I'd fly anywhere to be with those guys and you too. It was quite a flight coming in. As you've already heard the details, you don't need to know about it. But I heard the snow, the sleet all night last night. You, my goodness, I kept saying, turn it off. And it just <laughs> kept coming. So I get on my cell phone to find out what the degrees are because I don't do the Celsius thing. And my cell phone says it's 27 degrees. And then I looked at Marion and it said, that's where I'm from, and it said it's like 60. Didn't even bring a coat. I just brought a hat and figured I'd need it. So I listen to the sleet all night long and I look outside while we're uh, singing this morning about the glory and the power of God and I'm watching the way, I mean, just the waves of snow just come beating against and I'm thinking that's an awesome amount of power, isn't it? I mean, humans can do a lot, but the second the clouds get dark and the lightning starts to come, even the bravest one heads for cover. There's someone over them all who has that much dominance. And I woke up this morning and I used his name. And then he used mine. And you will live a long time and you will never have a privilege like that. We do not need to fear the one who makes all this stuff happen. We're on a first name basis with him. Isn't that right? If you ain't one of the amen group, just go like this because I now know I'm in a university where the intellectuals just kind of go. <laughs> We're starting a series this morning on salvation, what it means to be saved, soterias. <clears throat> what it means to be changed by the God who can make all of this stuff happens, has the power to change people too. That's the gospel. Tell me if you've heard the four spiritual laws or some version of them, have you? They go something like this. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Number two, However, we are sinful and separated from God. Therefore, we cannot experience God's wonderful plan for our lives. Law number three, but God sent Jesus Christ into the world to bridge the gap between God and us to forgive us of our sins and therefore we can experience God's wonderful plan for our lives Law four, we can only experience it by receiving Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. Now, that's not a verbatim, but that's pretty close. If you've heard or responded to some version of that gospel, let me see your hand. That's a popular form of the gospel right now, has led to thousands, no, millions of conversions. Have you heard of the Jesus film? Okay, at the end of the Jesus film, that's basically the gospel that they're telling you. Nothing wrong with it. 
It's right as far as it goes. According to their website, 10,800 people respond to this gospel every day. Every month, 320,000 people respond to that gospel somewhere in the world. That's the population of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Every 35 days, the entire city of Halifax and every soul in it responds to that gospel that I just told you. So far over 200 million people in more than 150 countries in the world have responded to that gospel. So this is not, to, even if you've not heard it, this is not to be taken lightly. That is a force to be reckoned with. But embedded inside of the four spiritual laws are what you might call spiritual flaws. One of the spiritual flaws is that it focuses so much on the decision that we are making ourselves that it virtually ignores the work that God is doing before we do anything. And that's a huge difference. Salvation or conversion as we call it is not a transaction that we make with God Repentance given, forgiveness received. It's a miracle that happens inside the heart of a believer. It's equivalent to turning water into wine. So that when it happens, it changes not only the way that we act, but the way that we react. It changes our tastes, our preferences, our thoughts, our imaginations. These things change in a miracle of salvation. The person who is saved is not the person who invites Jesus into his life. We don't know whether he's saved or not. The person who is saved is the one whom the Spirit of God is inside of. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. That's the miracle of conversion, is it not? It's not a simple transaction taken on the part of a human being on a decision to receive Jesus. It's an action taken on the part of God to transform the human soul. That's a big, hairy difference. The second flaw is that in focusing so much on the decision, it does not talk enough about the life that follows the decision. It's not simply a threshold that we step over and call ourselves saved. It's the beginning of a new existence that we live from that day forward. So in that sense, salvation is not static. It's always moving. Salvation is not a transaction. It's a life that is inside of us. And as all life goes, it either grows or it diminishes, but it does not stay the same. We must remember this. When we are telling people how to be saved, we are telling them how to have the life of God inside of them. And so as we get older in our lives, salvation changes. It takes on new and bigger ramifications. 
I'll put it to you like this. The reason that you got saved will not sustain you. You will need to develop another bigger engine as you get older in your lives for your salvation to be real and vibrant. You can't keep going back to a decision you made. It evolves around the love of God, which leads to a third flaw. It assumes that my biggest problem is sin and my biggest need is forgiveness. It is not. Sin and forgiveness are but symptoms of a deeper problem that I am separated from God and that I do not have his life in me. This is not just words. The key to understanding so much of the Gospels is to understand salvation in terms of life. Remember the Garden of Eden. On the day you eat of it, you will surely sin, die. Death is the problem. Sin is simply the symptom. And so salvation is the life of God coming into me and reigning over me. And it's bringing back into union two people who were separated. This is why Jesus said, depart from me, I never forgave you. He didn't say this. He said, I never, I never knew you. Salvation is not about simply being forgiven. It's about being back in union with the God from whom we've been separated our whole lives. So that may imply, and you can debate this in your next theology class after my plane leaves, there may in fact be many in the church who are forgiven of their sins and still do not know him. Because salvation is not a matter of forgiveness. It's a matter of knowing. Not asking, are your sins forgiven? Are you current on your last sin repentance thing? I'm asking you, do you know him as much as you know your closest friend? Or do you want to? That's a different meaning of salvation. It's bigger, it's deeper, it's more dynamic. It comes alive and it animates a person. Which leads to the last flaw. I'm just getting started. Hang on. And I want to focus on this one today. The last flaw is that it's too small. God does not just have a wonderful plan for my little life. This is hard to say in the day of selfies. God has a plan for life, period. And it's an invitation for me to get in to what God is already doing in the world. So in Isaiah chapter 61, the prophet 750 years before Jesus walked the earth says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me 
and he has anointed me to proclaim the gospel. That word gospel, don't let it fool you. It's not a religious term. Jesus didn't invent it. He hijacked it. It's a secular term. In the ancient days, the word gospel was used to describe the end of a war. It was used to describe in one ancient Near Eastern document the news that the price of anchovies went down in the market. Somebody said, this is the gospel. Anchovies are cheaper today. This is a bit like, this a bit like saying, your team just won the big game. That's the gospel. Price of stocks went up. You made money. That's the gospel. Your friend just got a job. Your brother and his wife are going to have a baby. That's the gospel. You must not confine the word to the church because it is not the church's word. The word belongs to the world. Whenever there is something happening in the world and the impact of that event is felt strongly by the individual, they just sort of say, man, that is good news. So I'm a Michigan fan, okay, sweet 16, and we beat Tennessee, and I'm like, man, that is the gospel. The dude's at the stripe, the game's tied. I'm saying, you've got to knock these. And he knocks them down, and I'm saying, that is salvation, man. <laughs> I mean, my future just changed. Do you know the mileage I'm going to get out of this? In Indiana? I'm going to ride that thing till it drops. <laughs> now, it is into this context that the servant says, I've come to proclaim really good news to people that are trapped in exile. That is, they're living in a foreign country. They're not in prison, but they're not in power. They don't have any control over their future, and so they just sort of hunker down and live out their existence, and they go to theme parks, and they get cable television, and they buy a boat, and they raise families, but for the law, they don't have a long-range plan. It's into this kind of a culture the servant says, I got really good news. The prisoners are going to be released. People that are blind are going to be able to see. People that are on the margins are going to know that this is the day of the Lord's favor. That's good news. It doesn't matter whether you're in the church or not. If this stuff is starting to happen, your little world just changed. Because the gospel is breaking in. And so in the book of Isaiah, the word is used to describe someone who runs into the city. Run into the city, he says in Isaiah chapter 40. And with good news or with good tidings, announce to the city, your God is here. Now he says anything in there about sin, repentance, and all of that. He simply says to the city in a secular environment, guess what, everybody? God has arrived. A few chapters later in Isaiah chapter 52, he says, how blessed are the feet of those who bring 
good news, who declare from the mountains, your God reigns. He's not saying this in church. He's saying it on the mountains in front of the secular public. God has arrived. God is on the move. The one who is doing this is already in our society, and he cannot be stopped. And that's really good news. And so in Isaiah 61, the writer says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim the ramifications of that news to the city. The gospel of Jesus Christ makes claims on the world. All of it. It makes claims on the individual person. It makes claims on your value system. It says certain things are real and other things are not real, whether you think they are or not. The gospel makes an individual claim on every individual's life to be the center of that life and says, live out of this storyline, not another one. But the gospel makes claims on my family. It makes claims on the way we live in communities on the affinity that we have for one another, on the way that we treat one another, on the way that we live for one another in that community is a result of the claims that the gospel makes on that community. So that even if nobody in that community is formally saved, as we like to call them, they are still living under the benefits that the gospel brings to that community when it says, treat people like this instead of like that. Serve them like this. Do not serve yourself. Whether they believe or they don't believe, they're living in the light of the gospel. They are not going to heaven, but they are still enjoying the benefits that the gospel brings to that little community. And the gospel make claims on our city. On the ethics of those who are in business in my little city of Marion, the gospel makes claims on the ethics of the business community. And the gospel makes claims on the nation, on the way that the poor are treated, on the way that life is defended, on the way that values are dispersed. The gospel steps into that community and says, your God reigns. Now it so happens that every generation will shift from one emphasis to the other. When I was a kid, all of the talk about salvation was about the individual. We were trying to bring the individual to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. We were trying to change the soul. I, can't, I mean, we were actually knocking on doors and handing out tracts. I was 12 years old at teen camp 
And they stuck a handful of tracks in my hand and said, go knock on doors and lead people to Jesus. I'm like, dude, this is camp. Can't you guys just have a pool? <laughs> this is stupid. I'm a kid. Then I grew up and somebody taught me how to soul win. I could take whole conversations and manipulate them so they led smoothly into a chance to pray the sinner's prayer. And you know why I did this? Because my DS kept wanting the numbers. How many people you lead to Jesus? I'm like, you're keeping score? Holy cats, I better get on it, man. <laughs> so I'm leading seven people to Jesus a week. I'm not making this up. We are racking them up, but nobody's staying in the church. You know why? Because we were successful in converting the individual, but we did not convert the life that was around the individual. And so gravity took over. You can save the human soul all you want, but listen to me, because we're in it right now at College Church. Unless you do something about the family and the neighborhood and the structures that are around that person, you are no match for inertia. They will be stuck, which leads to the other side of this thing. The generation that is active and coming up in the church right now has decided that this whole matter of leading people to Jesus was a bit overdone. And so what they've done is they've taken mission and uh, compassion to the hilt. And so they're all about serving in rescue missions and help bringing in the poor and bringing in those from the margins, they're really, really high on this. And I'm really optimistic about this. This is you guys' generation. I'm really hopeful that in a few years after the old curmudgeons die, we won't have some of the problems that we're fighting in our countries. Right? Immigration won't be as big an issue after the bigots are too old to rule. And neither will the whole um, black, white, Hispanic. That's not going to be an issue in the future because your generation, you get this. Even if you don't have it right, you get this in ways that my generation does not get this. And so the old guys are still protecting the old guard. And frankly, I'm almost one of them. I can't wait for our generation to quit. So yours can like bring in a new day of justice. But I'm afraid that when you do it, you might forget that at the core of changing a society, you have to change the individual. You can't just find people jobs. You have to teach them to value work. You can't just pass legislation that makes it easier for poor people to get money. You have to uphold the family. 
You have to teach a man and a woman at the smallest level in their soul to value marriage because unquestionably right now, the single biggest leading factor to poverty is broken marriages. And you don't hear anyone talk about this. And so as a general rule, if you don't want to be poor, stay married. Say, we're mad each other. Fix it. Because if you don't, you're going to be mad and poor. (laughs) The point is, we can't just go around changing things, opening up the door for the marginalized to get in. We have to realize that societies take the shape of the collective souls who live in that society. Decisions are made in private places. Evil lurks in the smallest places. It does not reside in City Hall. It resides in individuals who manipulate City Hall. And until the individual is changed, nothing has finally changed. Are we about there? Not long ago, I uh, called a meeting in our church. As I said, our church is going through a metamorphosis on this. We feel that God is like just putting all this on us and we're not ready for it. Like everything else, we backed into it. Man, we never... Man, it's like, I wish we, we should plan one of these days, you know, because all the great stuff in our church is stuff that we didn't plan. So we'll say, who's leading this place? And God is bringing people to our church that are very, very, very marginalized. And they're hearing the gospel. And, and the gospel that they're hearing is not simply that Jesus can transform an individual at the smallest, most intimate level, although they're hearing that all over. But they're hearing that Jesus has the power to transform all structures that are around us too, and you guys are a crucial part of that. We had this meeting in the conference room. I called in the leaders from the school, the public schools, called in the leaders from the city, and I got into a room and I said, what is wrong with Marion? They listed 35 things. Finally, number 35, one of the leaders of the community just blurted out, we suck. (laughs) So we put that up there and I said, well, I think that pretty much concludes this part of the exercise. I said, cluster these problems so that we're only dealing with three or four of them. And they did. They nailed a small cluster of three or four things down. Then I said, now come up with virtues that are opposite of the problems. Because at the end of the day, we're not trying to eliminate problems. We're trying to grow in opposite culture. The problem will take care of itself as soon as the opposite culture is in control. So let's talk about the opposite culture. What are the virtues opposite the problems we're trying to instill in the city of Marion? And what we learned was that the way our city works, very much like the one you will graduate and go into, is like a series of of cogs or gears they interlock. Part of them is spiritual. There's a value component 
that has to be changed in the human heart. But another part of the problem is social. People live in networks with friends. All of the people on their speed dial right now are of a certain type or persuasion. And so if you really want to change people, you almost have to steal their cell phone and give them a new list of friends because they immediately go back to that social network that they are in where values are reinforced. That makes sense? Part of the problem is economic. They can't find a job. And so it makes other behavior necessary. Now, I, I, and, 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 and like some, some of you, I'm like, man, you're just giving them a pass. Listen, dude, get out of the church and get into the city and listen to the stories. They steal because they must. We're dealing now with a strip club in Marion. And on every Saturday night, we go into the strip club. And there's women there, mostly middle age. Almost all of them are married. All of them have had children. Middle age women with multiple children are stripping in front of men every Saturday night. And one of them said, It's the only job I can get. She said, I was a prostitute at the age of 11. I consider this a promotion. At least I don't have to sleep with them. So there is a real economic component to this that we can no longer give to the professionals. We must be part of ourselves if we are going to bring the gospel and salvation as it was intended to come. Change society, not just individuals. There's a political component. And what we discovered is this is why, this is why when churches have revival, the city never changes because the church has been all about saving people's souls. But unless the church is active in the economic, the educational, the political, and the social realms of the, of the, of the city, that gear, you know what I mean? It gets stuck because the other gears aren't moving. This explains why you can have a school or a business or a factory where 80% of the people in the factory are saved and yet it's a toxic work environment. It's because they changed their soul, but they did not express salvation politically and socially. It's why people can be saved for years and trapped in poverty because we didn't save the economic gear. We simply did our thing and revival never moved because the other gears were stuck. So I'm preaching in jail and a guy stands up and he says, I've been here for the last five years and I get to go home next month. And they're all applauding. And he says, and I am not coming back. God has changed my life. I met Jesus Christ. I'm a new man. My sins are forgiven. And then it's like, I'm headed this is prison, and they're having revival. They're like, yeah, yeah. Then he gets to the end of it, and he says, this is my third time 
And this time I mean it. I am not coming back. And I said to myself, oh, yes, you will. You'll be back. Because unless we can change your friends and we can change your economic condition and we can give you an education, you will be pulled back and your soul with you into the very environment that you hate. And you guys, that's when it clicked for me. About a month ago, Angel came to our church, walked in on a Thursday and just said, I need to be clean. And then she started to spill. She was um, sexually active at 11 years old. She said, by the time I was 14, I decided I would get something for it if I had to give it away. She said, I made a vow to myself as a young lady that I would never sleep with more than nine people. I thought, wow. She said, um, so far there's been 18, and I feel dirty. What do I do? Angel came to Jesus Christ that day, and she experienced a change in her spirit. Her, it became alive to God. But she's still in this relationship with her boyfriend. Um, and it's not that just that they were living, it's that they were treating each other just really crappy. And so one day we said, Angel, we'd like for you to attend a small group, just you, not Dale, with young couples while they talk about their marriages. And we planted her in a group of couples that had been married 10 years, 15 years, and 20 years. And she sat there silent while they just talked about their struggles and what they felt and how they'd grown and things like that. And she walked out of that thing. And you guys, she never made any grand announcements. But all of a sudden, in one week's time, the people that are with her at meetings right now are seeing a fundamental change in the way she treats her boyfriend. They said, Steve, you're not going to believe this. She stood up at the last meeting and said, oh, Dale, you just sit there. Can I get that for you? We about fell over. You said, that's a small thing. Not in her world, baby. That's the gospel. That is a form of salvation on that area of her life. It was unchanged, and it's starting to change. Her husband, unemployed, felony, can't get a job, decides he can shovel snow. He doesn't have a driver's license. They won't allow him, so he pedals his bike in snow like this. I kid you not. Said, Steve, I just let the air out of the tires so they're a little flatter. I get more traction. And he says, I'm starting to, he has, I think I heard, 11 jobs. He shovels three feet of snow for eight bucks an hour. He says people don't know how to get hold of me, so he decides to make business cards. He makes his own business card. It's one of my prized possessions right now. You know what he does? He cuts up the back of a Mountain Dew carton. I don't know whether to laugh or cry when I see this. And he writes his name, snow and leaf removal on the front. And he's got 10 or 11 clients right now that he gets on a bike He's not formally given his life to Jesus Christ, 
But something happened here. He started to value work. It wasn't just about get a quick job. He started to value the place of work in his life and in the life of his family, his wife or his girlfriend's now expecting. And that's part of the salvation process. Does that make sense? That part of his life is starting to come alive. And so we're learning that as this happens to people that are way, way out there, Jennifer, with track marks up her arm a week ago last Friday, said all my drugs and all the paraphernalia was free. I had the life of a rock star. I said, you should be happier than you are. She said it was hell. It was just a black wall. And I want that part of her life, she's walked away from it. Rachel, who walks out of a life of poverty and abuse and goes back to her, gives her heart to Jesus, goes back to her family, and they, and they say, you got to get away from that church, man. That church is ruining you. You're just a whore. And she looks at him and says, then I am God's whore. I thought to myself, there's probably a better way to say that. But you can hear the change, can't you? And it's not all, the part, they're not all moving at the same time, you guys. Parts of the life get ahead of other parts of the life. But eventually, when someone is saved, and here's the point, all of life comes with them. Their family, their relationships, the way they treat each other, their value system, all of it is changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's what this means to you. One, no matter what field you go into, that is your job, and you get to play. I know this is a school where you train ministers and people who focus on religious education, but not all of you will end up in a job like that. Sorry to break your heart. You'll get into a job that pays 10, 12 bucks an hour if you're lucky, and you'll wait and say to yourself, someday when I get to move into my vocation of choice, then I can practice the gospel. You could not be further from the truth. The gospel gospel requires people in every domain of society living out the stark reality that our God reigns. And when you take churches, those of you that are lucky enough to get churches, it means that your main clientele will not be simply the people in your church, but the leaders in your community who do not come to your church. But they love your vision. And so they want to play with your church because they think they have someone who actually cares about the city. But you know the way to change the city is to change the human soul or ultimately the city cannot be changed. And last, this means that you don't have to do any of this. You just have to get stuff out of the way because God is on the move. The tide is coming in. And when it comes, like the Bay of Fundy, you either get on it and float 
or get out of the way. You cannot stop it. You are on the winning side. And your job is not therefore to persuade people to join your team. It is simply to proclaim that God reigns and help them join your team. That is your mission. It is easier and harder than you think. This morning as we take the sacrament, that's how we'll take it. Years ago when they took the sacrament, Latin for sacramentum, it was an oath that a soldier took before he went into battle. He took an oath. And this morning as you receive the elements, you'll take that oath, won't you? You'll say, Amen. Our God reigns and Amen. Whatever talent, whatever time I've got, I'll do that for the rest of my life. Because God is on the move. I'm going to ask Dave to come up and bless the elements as we prepare to serve them to you.